0: A friend of mine has a favorite reply whenever asked a question to which he doesn't know the answer. He says, well, that's why God invented Google. I'm not sure how much credit our God might want to take for Google, but it is true that it has become the go-to source for most for answers to most questions. The challenge arises when our kids view Google and the rest of the Internet as the authoritative source for answers to questions. Questions such as, did Christ really die, get buried, and resurrected? Or, even more important, I guess, is the Bible really true in all aspects? Questions that are the very linchpin of the Christian faith. So, if we can adequately explain and defend the evidence for the veracity of Scripture and Christ's literal resurrection, while exposing the flaws and arguments to the contrary, chances are good our kids will accept and obey our Savior. And obey us as well, I guess investigating cold-case Christianity for kids, today on License to Parent. Well, hello once again, and welcome to the License to Parent broadcast. License to Parent is the radio outreach of Shepherds Hill Academy, helping teens in crisis. As always, our host on License to Parent is the founder and director of Shepherds Hill, Trace Embry, and I'm Rich Rosel. And Trace, our uh, kids are certainly hearing a lot of arguments these days that would support the idea that the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth was never actually resurrected at all and that the Bible that tells his tale is not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I know um, that there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, of course, but why do you suppose we don't hear those arguments, the ones in favor of the veracity of Scripture,
1: at least on the Internet? <laughs> well, you know how that works, Rich. Uh, scandal and bad news, whether it's true and accurate or not, travels much faster than good news. I think that's just the carnal nature of human beings. I mean, we, we, we like to dig up dirt. Uh, just look at all the fake news going on as we speak. That's so popular in the media today. It's um, one of the biggest issues uh, going right now, and Jesus isn't even part of the equation. Uh, what bothers me is that as a people, uh, we've become so postmodern in our thinking that we basically believe what we want to believe. Uh, whatever makes us feel good and justified, regardless of how harmful or unjustified it might be. Because the mind can always justify what the heart has predetermined. So, in the eyes of many people today, and and certainly our kids, I don't think we really want to believe the Bible is reliable and that Christ actually ra- you know, raised from the dead. Because if Scripture is true and the resurrection really happened, then, then Christ would likely be who he claimed to be. And if yeah. he really is who he claimed to be, then... Not only would we have to heed his word, but there'd be some real consequences to deal with for denying him and rebelling against him. Uh, and as we'll discover in talking with our guests today, objectively, there's a pretty good case for the fact that this miraculous resurrection thing actually happened. But, Rich, if, you're, if your postmodern worldview and presuppositions about life and reality tell you that God or a literal resurrection is totally off the table, then your emotions and subjective reasons, uh, not logic or the objective evidence is a whole lot more likely to dictate your reality. Uh, But if you ask me, there's still something to be said for all the lives that get transformed every day by this historical figure we know as as Jesus Christ. We see it happen here at Shepherd's Hill all the time. So there's there's not only the objective evidence or the historical Christ we have to deal with and, and give our kids an opportunity to deal with. We have to deal with all the individual subjective evidences and actual life transformations that people are experiencing every day. I know in out in the Mideast, the Muslims are supposed to be having all these dreams. I keep hearing this stuff happen about Muslims having dreams about Jesus Christ. Uh, but since so many of our kids are being taught that the the only reliable evidence for truth and reality is in the realm of, of empirical evidence, and by empirical, I basically mean our five senses, well, I, I thought we'd investigate the veracity of Scripture and the and, and the resurrection today using the same tools that any good police detective uses to arrest criminals and put them in jail. And I think that's... Very worthwhile for us today. You know, you were talking
0: about postmodernism and postmodern thought. Mm-hmm. For all eternity, I think we've said we're going to believe what we want to believe, but it's not until more recent times that we've said, and that's okay. You know, there is no absolute truth. Mm-hmm. That's that's the, the most recent addition to the equation. Right. We we always do take that lead of, well, you know, I've, I'm believing this now. Let me find the evidence to support what yeah. I think is right. Uh, as opposed to looking at the evidence first and see what it what it shows. Well the
1: evidence to support what you said is wrong is is in the very statement you make. Because when you say there are there are there is no absolute truth. Right. You've just made an absolute. And so I, I have to ask you, is that statement absolutely true? So you know it's just it's a certain yeah. argument. Well it's I ridiculous. mean and
0: clearly it isn't. It it certainly is not. You know, I also referred to cold case Christianity in the opening uh, that's a term that gets its meaning from the cold cases that the police investigate. Mm-hmm. These are the, the tough ones. A cold case is a crime or an accident that hasn't yet been fully solved and uh, isn't the subject of any recent criminal investigation. There are investigators, though, who keep digging, who keep looking for new information that might emerge from new witness testimony, who reexamine the archives, who look at uh, new or retained material evidence. Uh, They might see new activity that takes place on the part of a suspect in the crime. Anyway, today's guest on Licensed to Parent is one of those investigators, which is really cool because we should always be investigating and looking for the evidence Mm -hmm. to support the things that we say that we stand for and believe. Well, in addition to being a cold case homicide detective, our guest today, Jay Warner Wallace, He's also a popular national speaker and a best-selling author. We'll be discussing a couple of his books today, Cold Case Christianity, and then more direct to our program, Cold Case Christianity for Kids. Uh, Mr. Wallace continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University and a faculty member at Summit Ministries.
1: Well, we asked Mr. Wallace what he'd like to be called. He wants to be called Jim. So, Jim, welcome to License to Parent.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's better to call me by my first name and it makes it easy for both of us. So, yeah, please.
1: <laughs> well, uh, Rich had uh, given a little uh, definition of cold case Christianity, but I want to hear your definition of what a cold case is and then how is it pertinent to faith in Christ?
2: Well, I mean, cold cases are of one kind, really. Uh, they're, they're murders because there's a statute of limitations on every other kind of crime. Robberies, burglaries, other kinds of crimes uh, eventually will expire. You only have so many years in which you can even conduct an investigation. Mm-hmm. But murders, uh, there's no statute of limitations. These stay open. So I'm basically in working homicides. I start off by just kind of collecting as a collateral duty, really, uh, some of the old unsolved cases from my partners in the years before me. And then eventually I started doing that full time and that's how I got involved in this work. And you're right. You're, you're often looking for things. I mean, it'd be great if you can find new witnesses uh, and add additional information. We often do that. But I think the majority of my work is, is looking for the stuff that's been hiding in plain sight for, you know, 30 years. Um, It's it's been there all along, uh, but maybe the initial investigators weren't able to kind of connect the dots and as I became interested in the Bible at the age of about 35, um, I was looking for the stuff that, um, I, taking the same approach, you know, looking at the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. Uh, were they really eyewitness accounts? Did we really think that they could have been written by people who actually saw these events? I had to examine that issue. And then I started picking them apart, just kind of looking again for what's hiding in plain sight to see if, because uh, there are certain things that are in the text that will tell you if these are reliable accounts, and that's the stuff I was looking for as I first examined the gospels.
1: Hmm. How'd your other, uh, police buddies deal with the fact that uh, you were investigating scriptural uh, uh, evidence for the or historical evidence for for Christ?
2: Well, I, I probably set myself up poorly because I was one of those outspoken critics of Christians and of Christianity for, for all my life. You yeah, know? you I, C.S. And and I, Lewis
1: and Josh McDowell. It, and it, a bunch it, of guys it, right. And so we
2: were arrested. We would arrest people, you know, who would claim to be Christians. We had a few Christians on our agency that we would make fun of. And I was very uh, condescending of, because most of the time I'm talking, I was on a five-man surveillance team at the time. I was working undercover. I had super long hair and, and a goatee. And, and uh, you know, I was doing this the, these investigations in an undercover position. And I remember um, we would arrest people, and uh, we would be mocking them for their Christian beliefs because so many of the people we arrested would tell us, you know, I arrested a bank robber one time in progress. We watched him do the bank robbery and we're working undercover. And then afterwards, we take him to jail and uh, he's telling me how he had been saved about a month earlier and how he knew better. But, you know, it, just explaining his life to me. And I, at that time, I thought, uh, that, this is a ridiculous worldview <laughs> in which the few people I knew who, who said they were Christians really could not make a case for why Christianity was true. And then the other people I met were the people who were doing crimes I thought, man, I'll tell you what, if this is what this entails, yep. no wonder, you know, this is a failing system, I thought. Uh, I didn't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. So, so when I talked that way for so many years and then suddenly became interested in investigating the case, my partners, to a man, uh, either rejected it or uh, mocked me for my efforts. But, yeah, so I, I brought that on myself, I guess. So I didn't feel too bad about it, but I still, to this day when I'll see folks who do that that gym from all those years ago they still tease me about it mm-hmm. so so yeah uh, it does, I did I get a bit of abuse over that Well
1: you sure. know there are a lot of jailhouse conversions for the wrong motives uh, uh and they go yeah, back on the street and you know I'm a Christian that's a kind of a cover and one if you ask any kid at Shepherd Hill what where, where, where's the devil do his best work the, the In church, they all know it, but but God does his best work in church, too, and I think that's the confusing part about it, and that's the genius of the devil. But uh, why is it so important for parents to to be able to uh, present physical, historical, scientific, logical, circumstantial, and other evidence for the veracity of Scripture and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Isn't faith good enough?
2: Yeah, I think it is important, and I'll tell you why. I think we are now at a loggerhead in culture in which two... Um, liberties are, are, are face-to-face. One is the desire that everyone has and the right that everyone has not to be discriminated against. That is a high value in our culture right now. Or is it? So whether it's your sexual identity, whatever, whatever it may be, people feel that they have a right not to be discriminated against. And on the other side of this equation, there's this uh, need for civil liberty, right? This idea that we ought to be able to freely express our religious beliefs and live accordingly. Right. And these two things are butting heads right now. Now, on the one side, we have people making a case objectively for why they ought not be discriminated against. And on the other side, we often have uh, Christians and believers who um, seem to hold a, an opinion, a subjective opinion about religion, about God, or about whatever they believe mm-hmm. metaphysically. And if we're going to have a battle of what on one side claim to be objective truths versus the other side would, claim, would appear to be subjective opinions, well, guess which side's going to win that? Right. And we haven't really helped the situation as Christians by presenting our case always as a matter of subjective experience. Why are you a Christian? Well, I had this experience. The Holy Spirit confirmed for me that this was true. Or my family were Christians. I was raised this way. It's one form of subjective Ah, uh, proof after another. When the world seems to be more inclined to trust objective, um, you know, facts, scientific facts, like you were saying earlier, empirical evidence. Exactly. Now, look, I do believe that our experiences are an empirical evidence, but it has to be part of a larger cumulative case. Right. If we want to be able to make the case in the in the public sphere.
1: Yeah. You know what I asked you? Isn't faith good enough? Uh, doesn't uh, doesn't true biblical faith demand evidence? I mean, Jesus didn't ask us to have blind
2: faith. No, you're right. And I'll tell you, this is something I talk about in another book called uh, Forensic Faith. There's three ways of looking at faith. One is an unreasonable belief that's, that's actually in spite of evidence to the contrary. And, of course, we're not asked to believe that way. The other is blind faith. You might believe something that's actually true, but you may have the wrong reason for believing it or not even know what the evidence is that makes it true. You can still be in the right place, though. And then third, there's a forensic faith, which, which means you're still going to have to take a step of trust because no case is complete. No case for any worldview has no unanswered questions. Every worldview has some unanswered questions. So you have to take that step of trust across the unanswered questions. But the biblical definition of faith is taking that step at the end of a long series of evidences that make this step the most reasonable step from evidence. Mm -hmm. This is what Jesus did. He often would say this, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles. He spends 40 days with the disciples in Acts 1, presenting many convincing proofs to the disciples. What is that all about? This is after the resurrection. Why would Jesus think he needs to provide more evidence after the resurrection? When I first read those passages as an atheist, I thought, well, at least this guy has a high regard for evidence. Right. At least this, this Jesus of Nazareth is not asking me to step out and give my life to something willy-nilly without any good reason. Yeah. Uh, actually, the Christian worldview has been evidential from the very beginning.
1: Right. I, I forget who said it. Help me with my unbelief. And then Thomas says, hey, you know, unless I can put my hand in his side and see the nail prints in his hands. And Jesus says, here you go. You <laughs> know, he he, yeah. he gives him the evidence,
0: but he also said, "Better is he who believes and does not see than mm-hmm. him who, you know, sees and believes."
1: But but, so, but he didn't negate
2: okay. the, the no
0: no he did he yeah. didn't. Yeah. But it was still the no encouragement. Very, and yeah.
2: rich. That's very important what you just said because that's often misconstrued as a as a, c- a command to believe in something that you cannot see. But if you read the very next line in that passage, he then continues to do things to convince, to prov- to answer their questions, to provide right. evidences to these disciples, why would he do that in the very next verse after this occurs? What he was saying is, you are my eyewitnesses. Blessed are those who will trust in your eyewitness testimony because they can't see it themselves. But they're going to trust in something, Mm -hmm. the eyewitness testimony of those who could see. And I think that's very important because eyewitness testimony is direct evidence. It's usually considered to be one of the highest forms of evidence. And all of the disciples were picked. All of the apostles in Acts were picked on the basis of their eyewitness authority. That's why Matthias, when replacing Judas, it has to be somebody who had knew Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. Why? They're looking for an eyewitness. It's a high value of direct evidence. Yeah.
0: Our guest today on Licensed to Parent is Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, Jim is the author of several books, including two that we're discussing today, but primarily Cold Case Christianity for Kids. By the way, there's a great website that uh, goes with that, coldcasechristianityforkids.com. Uh, then, I guess, the, the book for the rest of us, Cold Case Christianity. You can find those online at coldcasechristianity.com. And again, that website for kids, coldcasechristianityforkids.com. We're going to take a quick break here on License to Parent. We'll be back with more conversation with author Jay Warner Wallace when we return.
3: Everywhere we go, we're surrounded by screens. Have we entered into a techno-utopia or a virtual prison? prison? Is our social experience richer and deeper or more shallow and artificial? Discover insightful answers to these questions in the documentary DVD, Captivated, Finding Freedom in a Media Captive Culture. You'll learn from media experts, church leaders, and inspiring individuals and families from across the country, including Trace Embry and students from Shepherds Hill Academy. Most importantly, you'll discover how God's Word addresses the unique media challenges we face today. Captivated, finding freedom in a media captive culture. Available in the store at LicensedToParent.org. Proceeds benefit the Shepherds Hill Academy Scholarship Fund teen
0: rebellion depression addiction rage cutting and suicide are destroying our families today but there is a way out shepherds hill academy offers a 12-month christ-centered non-profit residential program where kids are being transformed with a biblical worldview and often medication free Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias is just one of many Christian leaders who understands what's happening at Shepherds Hill Academy.
2: It really is such an honor to come alongside Shepherds Hill Ministries and Licensed to Parent to rescue those who have been seduced along the way. Uh, I cannot gainsay how important this is, and to get behind a ministry like this, one will find the rewards to be extremely powerful in changing society.
0: Get the help you need at Shepherds Hill Academy. Go to HelpMyTroubledTeen.org. HelpMyTroubledTeen.org. You're listening to Licensed to Parent. You'll find us online at LicensedToParent.org. And by the way, if you visit that site, don't forget you can Listen to past conversations we've had on a variety of parenting topics. You can also uh, subscribe to our blog and uh, get updates in your email box or wherever you check out blogs at LicensedToParent.org. And we're talking today with author Jay Warner Wallace, uh, the author of the book Cold Case Christianity and also Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and Jim, we've been talking about uh, evidence and uh, the, the types of evidence that you look for in your uh, your work solving cold case crimes for the police. But would you say that if we were to look at the evidence that's currently available on the the bodily resurrection of Christ and we could present that in a court of law, would there be enough evidence there to uh, to get a winning, uh, I don't know what the term is. I don't want to say a conviction, but uh, would there be enough where the court could rule on, on that evidence and say, yes, this is valid?
2: Yeah, I think there, I'm going to make a very kind of controversial and bold claim here. I think there is. But let me let me qualify for those maybe who are skeptics who are listening to this show or even for parents who are thinking about how you would teach this to your kids. I think it comes down to two things. Are the eyewitnesses reliable? should we trust what the eyewitnesses are telling us about Jesus in the Gospels? And so I present a template it's to the kids in this book and also my adult book of what, how, it is, how do we test eyewitnesses in criminal trials to determine if they're reliable. It really is on the strength of four issues. One, were they really there to see what they said they saw? So are these early, written early enough to have been written by eyewitnesses? Remember, uh, uh, the early dating of the Gospels helps us in two ways. Number one, You have to be there in order to be an eyewitness. So if these are written in the second or third century, they're lies because no eyewitness would be alive still. But if they're written early enough also to have been written by eyewitness, they would also have been written early enough to have been fact-checked by those who would know if they're alive. So the early dating of the Gospels is, is an important issue. Number two, can they be corroborated and verified in some way, both internally and externally? When we're examining a witness, we want to make sure he's internally consistent and if there are some external issues, in this case, archaeology, the statements of non-Christians in the first century, these kinds of things are going to be important to us. Third, have they changed their story over time? You may have an early document, but is by the time it gets into the canon of Scripture, has it been modified, altered, uh, does it fraudulently now contain errors? Those are important questions to ask. And finally, do the authors possess a bias that would cause them to lie to us? As I examined the Gospel authors under those four criteria, I was stuck. I was stuck. I I had a document that passes the test in all four areas in a way that not only very few uh, uh, ancient witnesses would ever pass, but in the exact same way we would go to trial. So now i got to make a decision. Well, do I trust what it says about the resurrection? Now I go another step. You have to ask yourself. This is a process we teach in the book called Abductive Reasoning. Is the explanation offered by the authors of Scripture the most reasonable explanation? Because I can think of six other explanations that I could offer as an atheist to explain the empty tomb, to explain why these folks were saying this happened. It could be a lie. They could be wrong about the fact that he was actually dead. They could have stolen the body out of the tomb. They could have hallucinated this. I can come up with a number of other explanations. So I then began to examine all the other explanations. Long story short. If you test the eyewitnesses, they pass the test. If you use abductive reasoning, their explanation for what happened actually ends up being the least problematic of all explanations. Here's the only rub: the rub is it's going to require us to accept as reasonable a supernatural event known as the resurrection. And And I would have told you, as an atheist, I was a philosophical naturalist. I was out, but I try to teach this to the kids in the book. If we're going to examine this critical question, can supernatural events ever be considered reasonable? You cannot begin by rejecting all supernatural events. That's the thing you're examining. That's the whole point of the investigation. You're going to have to at least leave that as an open question until you examine all the evidence.
1: But that's not what they're willing to and do. Pre- those are presuppositions that are carved in stone for them, that the miracles do not exist. How do we get past
2: that? Well, okay, so I, that was me. I was there, too. Then I stopped and I asked myself, well, wait a minute. Can my philosophical naturalism really explain the universe the way it is? I don't into a lot of detail here, but my book, God's Crime Scene, is really all about this one issue. And as it turned out, I already believed in something huge, that could not be explained naturally. And what I mean is, all nature involves is space, time, matter, the laws of physics and chemistry that are govern space, time, and matter. So that's all you have to work with if you're going to stay within the natural realm. And I already knew that I was a Big Bang cosmologist as an atheist. I believed that all space, time, and matter left into existence from nothing yeah, to that's what Big Bang physics teaches. And so I believed that on the basis of the science. That means that whatever caused the universe to leap into existence cannot be spatial, temporal, or material. It cannot be governed by the laws of physics that govern those things in the natural realm. In other words, I already believed in an extranatural first cause of everything in the universe. So I simply asked myself, well, wait a minute. If that extranatural first cause is a personal being, I'll bet you that every other miracle that's listed in the New Testament— would be small potatoes. If you could create the entire universe from nothing, you could probably walk on water. So <laughs> that's my <right>. point <laughs> here is was it opened the door to all of the other claims of the supernatural. Yeah. No because no. I already realized as an atheist, I was embracing a significant extranatural event.
1: Doesn't DNA make that a bigger problem? Because, I mean, DNA oh, re- ab- requires absolutely. an so, intelligence.
2: Yeah, so that's another. So what I do in God's crime scene is look at eight, pieces of evidence in the universe and ask the question, can you get these eight things with just the stuff of the universe, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry? And you cannot get information from space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. We already know that. There's certain levels of information, and you can only get the lowest level of information known as statistics. You can get that from physics, but that's all you can get. And DNA is, in fact, the highest level. It's called apabetics. The highest level of information, and this is always our only experience in all of history, in all of science, is that that level of information has to come from intelligence. So what is the intelligence source? And by the way, it's not a what. It can't be a what because it has to be a free agent who can choose between alternatives when creating information. We're looking for a who because only who's can make those kinds of conscious, free choices to, to create information—that's no, exactly and that's right. the real dilemma we have. I think we are looking for
0: a divine who. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, our time is up uh, today. The uh, court case has to close for now. But uh, <laughs> you, members of the jury, listening to the program, uh, we'll will just say that the jury is going into recess because we want you to consider what's been brought to light on this program, and uh, we'd love to hear from you as well if you've got any thoughts on it. You can always visit our website at org and. Uh, Give us your thoughts. But the case for Christianity, and in this case, the cold case for Christianity, is a fascinating conversation. And our guest today on the program has been J. Warner Wallace, author of the books Cold Case Christianity and Cold Case Christianity for Kids. You'll find them online at coldcasechristianity.com. And again, the interactive website for kids is coldcasechristianityforkids.com. Jim, thanks so much for taking time to be with us. We appreciate it.
2: Oh, I'm the one indebted to you guys. Thanks so much for having
0: me. And that does close another cold case here on License to Parent. License to Parent comes to you from Shepherd's Hill Academy, a year-long Christ-centered therapeutic residential program helping teens in crisis and their families. If you need help for your troubled teen, please contact us by following the links to Shepherd's Hill on our website. That's LicenseToParent.org. You can learn more about our ministry and even help the work we do with teams by visiting us at LicensedToParent.org. You can also listen to other conversations we've had on a wide range of parenting topics, and you can subscribe to our blog once again at LicensedToParent.org. Our guest coordinator on Licensed to Parent is Daniel Fazina. Our technical producer is Carl Peets. For Trace Embry, I'm Rich Roswell, inviting you to join us again next time to renew your license
1: to parent. And remember, folks, if you don't train your children, somebody else will. God bless you. We'll see you next time.